Well, amen. We have a lot to sing about, a lot to praise about, a lot to thank God for. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're in our City on a Hill series, and I want to ask you to turn there, and I want us to look at this passage that we've actually been looking at for the last three weeks. And think about the opportunities that are before us. God has blessed uh, this church with great opportunities throughout her history. He has strategically placed us and positioned us and provided for us to do the things that maybe no one else is willing to do or has a vision to do. And how we handle those opportunities are crucial if we're going to be the church that God has called us to be and continue to see the blessings of God. Matthew 5 and verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then I just want to read quickly Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There are three phrases that should stand out today in these verses. One, cannot be hidden. Two, see your good works. And three, continually devoting themselves. When you walk out of this worship center this morning and into the atrium, you'll see a sign out there that says, come and connect. How do we help people to come and connect? How do we make that a part of our DNA? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to remember the blessings that are before us. One thing I love about this church is that we're willing to tackle big things. And we're willing to tackle big projects and big visions. We are not trying to figure out how much does it cost. What we're trying to figure out is, does God want us to do it? And when God wants us to do it, then he's going to provide the resources for us to do that. And I, I love the fact that through the years, we've had a whatever-it-takes mentality. And, and you begin to notice that. A community notices that. Even people that have nothing to do with a church, they will notice if you're committed to doing whatever it takes. When you have the and then some attitude, well, guess what? Starting next year in January, we're going to get stretched on that a little bit. We've been uh, raising money this year in our first year of our campaign for Meet the Need, and uh, we've already done some things this year in putting 130 more parking spaces around the library. And you may go by there and say, I, I don't know why we need that. Well, sometime in January, there are going to be 26 trailers parked in this parking lot by the Hope Building and Faith Hall. So you and Jesus and whoever parks there, <laughs> you're going to have to find a new place to park because we've got to provide that for Sunday school because we're tearing down two buildings. And so there's going to be some adjustments for us, and we're going to do it with joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to be happy about it. 
and the guys in the parking lot helping us, we're going to roll down our window and say, somebody got our parking space. Where do we need to go? Because we're going to be happy. Amen? Amen? And if you're not, we have armed sheriffs <laughs> surrounding this facility. And we can take care of your problem. <laughs> We're going to be bringing in those temporary buildings. It's going to require us to adjust, to be flexible, and to be patient. Like any project, it takes longer than you think, and it stirs up more dust than you think. But here's what we cannot do. Over the next two and a half years, we cannot just coast and say, well, when we get those facilities finished, then we're really going to focus on inviting people to come. That's not the way for us to think. That's not the way for us to act. We need to act now and think now about who we bring now so that when those facilities are ready, we are ready to walk into them and we're already moving forward at an aggressive rate to fill those buildings every Sunday. There's a lot to be done. The, the key is the substance that's going on inside the structure. Because people will drive by over the next two and a half years and they'll see buildings torn down and they'll see steel stacked up and they'll see walls going up and buildings being extended and they'll see all of that, but that's not the most important thing they need to see. They need to see substance in us because structure is just an empty shell. If there's no power and there's no structure inside we can have the finest facilities in this community or in this region. But if we don't have the power and the presence of God inside those facilities, we've just got nice buildings to look at. In the coming months, we're going to learn some new things. We're going to learn new parking. We're going to learn new ways to enter the building because some of the entrances we have now are not going to exist for a couple of years. So we're going to have to make some adjustments. Which, by the way, just as a forewarning, for those of you that get here at 9.30, for 9.30 worship, by the time you find a parking space and get a seat, you're going to miss everything, but we're going to wait to take the offering until you get inside. <laughs> because we don't want you to miss an opportunity to be a blessing. All right, so, and if you get here after the offering, we'll have the sheriff's officers with the guns, with plates in their hands, because we know you want to give willingly or grudgingly. We really don't care. <laughs> We're going to have some new opportunities. And what's tasked before us is that we need to think sacrificially. We need to think others-centered. We need to think servant. We need to set high standards. We need to invest in this personally and prayerfully. John Winthrop said, we must delight in each other, make others condition our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our community as members of the same body. We are building 
for future generations, not only for today and not only for us to use, but for children that have yet to be born and families and singles that have yet to be reached. With the decay of the family and of society, I believe people are searching more now than they have been in decades for answers and for hope. And here's what you know and I know. They're not going to find it in the government. Now, when a society begins to depend on government to fix its problems, then society has lost a sense of responsibility. And how many of you have ever heard a politician lie? Okay, so if they promise you they're going to take care of you for the rest of your lives, they just lied to you. Because they're one vote and one lobbyist group away from changing their minds. That's what politicians do. They go with whichever way the wind's blowing. So if you're depending on the government, if anybody in this community is depending on the government to fix all of their problems in their life, guess what? They're going to be disappointed. If you're depending on business, your job, where you work, to solve all your problems, here's what you need to know. The average, this is the average, college graduate today will have five different jobs in his working lifetime, and most of those will be outside the area of their degree. So if you're depending on, well, I got this degree, mom and dad showed up for graduation, I got slung the tassel over, got the little dean's list thing, my mom and dad were so proud of me, guess what? That's no guarantee. And if that's what you're hoping in, You're one tragic incident in your life from losing what you're hoping in, okay? Thirdly, relationships. Now, we've got a lot of strange emphasis on relationships right now, and there are a lot of laws being passed. There are things being considered that impact us, affect us, our views of marriage, Our views of acceptable behavior are all impacting us. And so we need to understand that relationships are not going to satisfy people. That's not what satisfies folks, okay? There's only one relationship that's ultimately going to satisfy you, and that's your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then I got to be honest with you, there's a lot of dead religion in America today. Anybody notice that? There's just a lot of dead religion in America today. Lifeless religion with no joy, no peace, no power. And our calling is to have an authentic representation of the life of Christ. That when people see us and see through us, they see authenticity. Okay? Now, how are we going to do this? First of all, we're, we're addressing the needs of our church and the ministries of our church. We took two hours in January of last year to talk about what we needed to do on this campus. In January, we will bring you the results of two separate task task forces that have been meeting all year and working on plans for the future development of Sherwood Christian Academy and plans for the future development of ministries at the Coke plant. So that's coming. 
We're, we're going to address how we meet the needs of this community. We're going to talk about how we use that Coke plant and how we use our ministry at Gillespie and how we use Legacy Park as cooperating with parachurch ministries and other churches to do a greater job of ministry. Here's what you need to know, church. You are very good at giving, and we need you to be very good at giving because there are 400 verses in the Scripture that talk about how God's people are to react and to treat the less fortunate. 400. We can't ignore that. That is part of our missional work, is to help, to encourage, to come alongside with other ministries, to do something for those that are less fortunate than us. We're going to focus on missions. We have increased and ramped up our focus on missions. We're going to talk more and more about that, but here's what births great missions, is a church that is pressing in on revival. Because a revived church can do more in a community and in a nation than just any church trying to spend money to fix needs. We need to press in. We need to impact other churches in our area, in the country, through the Refresh conferences. We continue to try to expand that. I got an email this week from John Yates, who's the head of the Missouri Baptist Convention. They are sponsoring the Refresh conference as their state evangelism conference because their, their people said, if we don't have revival, if God doesn't begin to do a new work in our dying churches, evangelism's not going to be mentioned or talked about. It won't matter because nobody's doing it. And they have already 350 signed up, and we're two and a half months away. And so God's going to allow us to speak into hundreds of pastors in the state of Missouri. So we need you to be praying for that, that God would use that conference in a significant way to impact the lives of churches in a state that some of us have never been to. They're the show me state, and we need God to show up and show them. All right? We're going to go after the homeless and the helpless, and we're going to go after people who are behind gates and walls of success. That means that there's nobody off limits to what this church needs to be doing. We're going to increase our intercessory prayer ministry in January. We're going to do something that we have not done uh, in several years, and we're, we've been ramping up for months getting ready for this, but we're going to call this membership, and then we're going to call every person in the phone book and ask them how we can pray for them. And here's how we're going to do it. Because of the Family Matters Conference, we're going to call them and tell them about the Family Matters Conference. Now, we means us. <laughs> we need 600 of you to help us do this. We're going to call them and tell them about the Family Matters Conference, and then we're going to ask them a question. How can Sherwood Baptist Church pray for your family? Can I tell you something? You will not get one in 100,000 people that will tell you they don't want somebody praying for their family. And we're going to take the families of this region, and we're going to pray this next year for the families of this region 
so that when they need a touch from God, we are on the forefront of their minds about a church that cares for them. And so I want to give you some questions that you need to kind of get into your daily conversation. As you go to the drugstore, as you go to the grocery store, as you go to the gas station, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, as you go to school, as you go to work, let me me give you some questions that you need to be asking people. And this ought to be as natural for us as anything else we do. Number one, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? You say, well, I'm not real good at sharing my faith. I'm not real good at telling people about Christ. I I don't really, but you know what? You can ask a question. How can I pray for you? I had a guy pick me up in a car a a month or so ago, and he said, I want to add you to my prayer list. How can I pray for you? Twice this week, this guy that I met one time, spent 20 minutes with twice this week has sent me a text message, how can I pray for you today? You know what difference that makes to me? That some guy that doesn't know me, I may never meet again, has asked me, how can I pray for you? And so I tell him. You know what most people you ask that question to, they're going to tell you how you can pray for them. Second question is this, can I tell you how Jesus has changed my life? Now, all the Alabama fans in the room can tell us how Alabama's changed their life. But can you tell anybody about how Jesus has changed your life? Because win or lose, that championship trophy is not going to heaven. But the people you work with and the neighbors you live by are going to heaven or hell. Can I tell you about the change that Jesus has made in my life? And and then we, we need a third question. Would you like to come with me to Sherwood? And this is what you're going to get. Oh, 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 that's a big church. I heard the pastor has an airplane. And a helicopter. I don't. That's a big, it's, you know, that's a big church. I, I don't know about that. Listen, it's still statistics say that, that over 70% of people will come to a church if they're invited. Would you come with me? Would you join me one Sunday? Would you come with me to the concert next Sunday night that the, that the adult choir is going to do, that the kids are going to do, Relevate's going to do? Will you come with me to that? You know, there was a day when we had to have multiple, many performances for Christmas to hold all the people. Now, I know we got a bigger room now, but we used to have five or six. Now we have one. Somewhere along the line, ladies and gentlemen, We forgot that we're not doing Christmas programs to entertain the choir. We're doing them to give you an easy opportunity to bring somebody to church with you, to invite somebody to come. Will you ask anybody this week to come with you next week and to sit with you next Sunday night and enjoy a great worship experience? Now, how did this church in the book of Acts 
follow through on this city of the hill. Well, Acts 2 and verse 40, he solemnly testified and kept exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received him were baptized. Second thing, believe and be baptized. As soon as these people believed, they got baptized. Now, why baptism? Because it is a witness and a confirmation of something that has happened on the inside. Now, people can argue with you about issues like baptism, but let me just give you some references. Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian believed and was baptized. Acts chapter 10, the family of Cornelius believed and was baptized. Acts 16, Lydia was baptized after her conversion. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer was saved and was baptized. Baptism, if you've watched a baptism in our church, is a picture of dying to an old way of life and being raised to a new way of life. It is a public confession of faith. It does not save us, but it is a picture of dying to, I was without Christ, I died to that old way of life, now I've been raised to walk in a new way of life. The water doesn't save us. But it is what Jesus told us to do. And if we ignore him on an essential and easy thing like baptism, then what else will we ignore him on? Baptism's like wearing a wedding ring. When I wear, I didn't put this ring on until I got married. Now, I could have gone to the store and bought a ring and said, well, I'm going to get married, and so I'm going to wear it, and ladies can go to the store and buy a ring so it looks like they're married. But the reality is a wedding ring is a testimony that I have made a commitment in my heart to someone. And you don't wear a wedding ring before you get married. You wear a wedding ring as a symbol that you have made a covenant commitment with somebody else. That's why you wear it. Baptism is a picture of a covenant commitment with Christ. When you and I are baptized, it is an encounter with Christ and a witness with Christ. When somebody is baptized in this room on a Sunday morning and they're 14, 12, 1400 people in here, it is them proclaiming their testimony that I used to be one way and now I'm a new way. I am walking in a new life. The Greek word means to dip, to plunge, to immerse, or to put under. It, it does not mean there's no way you translate the Greek word for baptism to say sprinkle, nor is it a word that is applied to something that you do to an infant right after they are born. It is a word picture of an adult decision, a fully aware decision to trust Christ as your personal Savior. So if you were sprinkled by a priest or a preacher, and when you were confirmed as a baby, you haven't been baptized. Now, that may break your bubble, but there is no infant baptism in Scripture. Now, you can follow the tradition of a denomination, but there's no infant baptism in Scripture. There's no sprinkling. It was immersion in Scripture. And so some people save water, but they're not being biblical. 
in how baptism is handled. L- listen, it's a burial. It is a burial. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, buried with him through baptism into death. Now imagine the impact in Jerusalem when those 3,000 believed after Peter preached the sermon at Pentecost and they go outside the walls of the temple compound and they go into those cleansing pools and their baptism. 3,000 people in a Jewish culture that is following religion and rules that had not accepted Jesus as Messiah And suddenly they've repented and they've believed and Peter says, be baptized. And they walk out and in front of thousands upon thousands of other people who will cut them off. The minute they walk in those baptismal waters, they boldly proclaim, Christ is my Messiah. He has changed my life. They walked away from thinking that we keep rules and regulations and do good deeds, and that gets us into heaven, into saying it is through grace and love and the forgiveness and the blood of Jesus Christ that I'm saved. Some of you need to come this morning and say, I need to get my baptism on the right side of my salvation. When we started the Refresh Conferences, one of the breakthroughs in that Refresh Conference is sitting right over here. His name is John Dees. And I remember standing down here, and John Dees was sitting right there, and he walked down, and he kneeled down right here on this end of this prayer bench right here, and he said, I need to get my baptism right. And everybody in this church that knew John Dees at the time knew John Dees was a good man, and he was an honest man, and he was a man of character. And he was my banker, and I, he knew my finances better than anybody, and so I owed him a lot of money. So I've always treated John with respect. <laughs> but I want to tell you something. That was a breakthrough for a lot of people. You know what keeps us from doing that? Pride. It's just pride. Because somebody might think differently about us. doesn't matter what they think. It matters what God's Word says. All right, let's look at the body life. You see, if we don't have a church that has body life, healthy body life, then where the next generation finds their body life is in gangs and cults and clubs. But our fellowship, our Bible study, our discipleship, our worship are built around connecting with God and connecting with others. This church, this early church, broke bread together. They met needs of one another. They fellowshiped together. They had all things in common. It is said that they had glad and sincere hearts. Now, let let me just brag on you for a minute, okay? The consistent theme that has been true in this church since the day I became pastor is people saying to me things like, In a death, in a tragedy, at a time of need, the Sherwood family, my Sunday school class, came through for me. Now, if you're not connected in a Bible study class, can I tell you something? You'll never fully understand what that means. Because you need to be with a group of people that you can call at a moment's notice, and they're there. I mean, I've never walked into the home of a Sherwood member that's had a death and said, there's no food. There's always food. 
thing I always hear is, I don't know what we're going to do with all this food. Why? Because of body life. Because when a member of our family is hurting, we gather and we minister and we hunker down with them. We stand with them. And that's the body functioning. Now, the role of the pastor and the staff is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And can I tell you, many people in this church do the work of ministry well. They take care of people. And sometimes it can be people that are on the fringes and they find out about it and they go meet a need. We've got young men in this church. and We used to have some older men and they've kind of passed the torch. They build wheelchair ramps for people. They're building them almost every week. They don't walk around with a sign on their back, we'll build wheelchair ramps. They just do it. They just find ways to serve and to meet needs. In the New Testament, the church is called a household in Ephesians chapter 2, but in multiple books, it's called a body. We are baptized into one spirit, into one body. Chuck Colson in his book, The Body, said, Christianity is not a solitary belief system. There is no such thing as Christianity apart from the church. So here's the three questions you need to answer in your Bible study class. The three questions that you need to answer as a member of this church, helping other people. Number one, who am I? Who am I in Christ? Who am I as a member of this church? Secondly, Where do I belong? Where do I belong? Where where do I need to find a place to plug in? And thirdly, how do I fit in? How do I fit into this body? How do I move from being a spectator and an observer to an active participant in the life and the health and the ministry of this church body? The word fellowship is koinonia. It means all together. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One commentator said it this way. Here the apostle testifies to what are always two of the biggest barriers to social harmony ethnicity and economics. Division by race and class hinders every attempt to establish community. This is an area where this church, more than any other church in this region, this church has to be a living witness. America is a deeply divided nation. And we have to work to build bridges and to break down walls. We have to work to make sure that whosoever will may come. We don't need the government to legislate to us who we're supposed to care for. The Word tells us who we're supposed to care for. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. When Jesus came and established the church, and when Paul established the church, and the two verses I just read, he did not say, 
Now, Gentiles meet over here and you have your style of worship. And Jews, you meet over here and you have your style of worship. And slaves, you meet over here and you have your style. And, and free men, you meet over here and you have your style. He said, we are one in Christ. Now, I don't care how you were raised. How you were raised has nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. And you can live with how you were raised or you can get over it and get beyond it. I was raised in Mississippi, full of prejudice. And there are people above the Mason-Dixon line that think they're not prejudiced. I remember Terry having a conversation with a lady that lived in New Hampshire one time, and she asked her, she said, how, how do you relate to people of other races? She said, oh, we don't have any prejudice in New Hampshire. And uh, Terry said, well, how many African Americans live in your town? She said, none. <laughs> the uniqueness of this church, and one of the reasons God has blessed this church is we have Asians and Africans and people from India and Pakistan and Israel. We have whites and blacks. We have red and yellow, black and white. We have people from 13 nations in this church. I'm seeing, and I pray I continue to see, a church where the power of the Holy Spirit makes us love people not by what they look like on the outside, but we love people because of what God wants to do in them on the inside. That we love people and not say, when you clean up, then you can come. But we ask them to come so that God can clean them up. We're not trying to get a perfect church with a certain socioeconomic dynamic to it. That's a country club. That's not a church. If you're looking for a church where we believe and teach and practice that all are welcomed into the family of God, who come by faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, who do not see rich or poor or black or white, or yellow or red. They just see people. Amen. And everybody you meet, Tom Ellis said it well, it really simplifies it when you realize everybody you meet is either saved or lost. It makes it real simple. Everybody in the region that we touch, and we're in 30 communities around Albany, everybody in the region we touch is either saved or lost. And you need a body that you can get in that doesn't let you stay comfortable with your little circle of folks that look and think and act like you, but stretches you to get out of that little circle and start thinking about how can I love people the way Jesus loves them? How can I be salt, a purifying factor in this society? How can I be light? in a dark world? How can I make a difference? You see, you need a body like that, but a body needs people that have that attitude Amen. and have that DNA. Amen. 
I believe we can be that church. I believe we are in many ways that church. By what we're doing with missions, by what we're doing with our city ministries and missions, I believe we are, but we can always do better. We must never rest on what we have done in the past. We must always look forward and say, God, how can we do more? Real simple, and then I want us to pray. The parable of the talents in Scripture. God gave some one talent, five, ten. And some went and buried them, and some went and invested. The parable of the talents, if you want to summarize that parable, it's simply this. Those who do well with the work they are given get more work. (laughs) So guess what? If we do well with the work we've been given, God will give us more to do. Because God knows he can trust us with the work he gives us. I want to be able to stand before God one day and say, God, everything you entrusted us to do, we put our hands to the plow and we did it with all our might to the glory of God and people were saved because we weren't afraid to work and to do what you told us to do. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed?